welcome to Footsteps of the Fallen, a Great War podcast with me, battlefield researcher, historian and writer, Matt Nixon. For the last 30 years, I've been visiting the cemeteries, memorials and battlefields of the First World War. And in this series of podcasts, I'd like to take you on a journey through France, Belgium and further afield and tell you the stories of some of the places I visited and the stories of the men who lie as the dead of the Great War. So pack up your kit bag and join me as we walk the well-trodden paths on the battlefields, following in the footsteps of the fallen. It's a pleasure to have your company. So welcome to this special episode of Trench Talk on Footsteps of the Fallen. And it's a, an absolute pleasure for me to be joined this evening by military historian Paul Reed. Uh, Paul is a writer, uh, podcaster, broadcaster, and I believe I'm correct in saying honorary Yorkshireman. And uh, it's uh, it's a pleasure to have you uh, with us here, Paul. Thanks very much indeed for giving up your evening to come talk to us. Uh, my pleasure, Matt. Uh, yes, I am a, an honorary tyke um, here in South Yorkshire, something I'm very proud of. And how long, how long have you been up there now? Oh, uh, I'm, I'm only doing my apprenticeship, really. I've only been here five, six years. So uh, uh, working for a Yorkshire company for a quarter of a century, though. So I've been coming back and forwards for much longer. But um, nice, nice to be living up there. I always enjoy seeing your pictures of the, uh, the Yorkshire countryside on social media. It was, uh, looks a very appealing place. Yeah, I'm lucky that uh, where my little village is, it's it's right on the edge of the countryside. Uh, we tend to think of the north as this grim north with satanic mills and collieries and things like that, but actually there's quite a lot of countryside too. And uh, and actually it's not dissimilar to parts of, of, of the Great War battlefield. So in this period when we've not been able to get there, it's been quite nice to be able to go out and walk some of that ground. Um, there's a bit of down well, hills above me, which is very similar to the Somme. So that's been quite good. So I was um, so I was actually I was on the Somme yesterday and you talk about those uh, rolling hills and uh, like you, it was my first trip back to the battlefields for, for some time. So I understand that you were back on your first tour for uh, what, probably what, two years, was it? It, it was. Yeah. I mean, uh, we we last had a tour go out in March 2020, but I, I wasn't on it. I had one of my team on it. I just come back from doing some some battlefield recce's in preparation for what we should have been doing in 2020. In fact, just come back from a very, very snowy Somme. And um, it, then the world changed. And I, I managed to get over last um, summer briefly for a week in eat, but not down to the Somme. So last week uh, I took a tour out quite on the Western Front, going along from Flanders down to Luz and Arras and Vimy, and then uh, a day on the Somme as well. So it was good, certainly very, very good to be back. It was a, a good uh, a good bunch of clients on there. I presume they were all very excited to be able to travel again as well, I would assume. Yeah, I mean, it's it's uh, it's our introductory tour to the Great War battlefields. And so, so a couple of these people have been before, but most of them hadn't. And, and actually, I quite like those tours because they've got, minds like sponges they want to know everything and, and they ask lots of questions and that's always really really good and it's always interesting to see how people react to places that you've been to yourself many times when they see it for the first time and, and what they say about it uh, and that's that's always a fascinating experience so i guess it must be um I, part of the enjoyment of it i suppose is sort of bringing it 
to life because you can read books and you can sort of look on Google Earth and something like that, but nothing actually beats standing on the battlefield and having somebody sort of explain it to you as well. Which part of the of the tours that you do is it? Is it, do you enjoy the most? Um, well, it, I suppose it is bringing bringing that aspect of the Great War back to life and ma- making and helping people understand what it is that they they see when you you visit these places and and debunking some of the myths because you know many people go with some preconceived ideas on generalship and and you know what they're going to find and all that kind of stuff um, and you can pretty you know the whole Great War. Um, battlefields from along the western front are like a mini classroom in some respects that you can very easily demonstrate to people all sorts of aspects of that conflict which perhaps challenges their conceptions of it um and makes them think and and that's that is a very enjoyable part of it i never tell them what to think i show them a few things tell them a few stories and um and they they draw their own conclusions from it so you know everything from Lions led by donkeys and chateau generals and trying to knock that on the head through to the whole idea of shot at dawn. And I mean, Langemark, you know, we went there last week. What do people make of that? You know, and um, and how does that fit into the wider story of the of the 20th century? So all of that is is good. I mean, that that's the best bit of it is when you're sitting there at, on the front of the coach on the dicky seat, the microphone in your hand, jabbing away and uh, and then on the ground and. You know, you know yourself, a field is a field, but when you can explain what happened in that field and tell some of the stories of, of the people that walked across that ground more than a century ago, people start to see it in a slightly different sort of way. Uh, and that's a good thing. Yeah, I, I, absolutely. I mean, so, so do you know in advance um, who, sort of who the clients are in terms of sort of, um, you know, somebody may have had a particular relative and they're going to a place where um, their relative may have been or, or does it, so does that help you kind of prepare for your tours? Uh, generally, we don't know that unless they've, they've mailed in. I mean, typically in a, in a normal year, we would be taking anything from 10 to 15,000 people across to the battlefields. So to have a kind of system where they pre-registered their interest in it would probably chew up a lot of our employees doing all kind of admin. Um, so it's it's one of the first things you broach when you get on a, on a coach and you talk to the group and you tell them a bit about who you are and, and so on and what they're going to see. And, and you mentioned that, you know, if you've come for a particular reason or you've come to visit a, a name on a memorial or a grave somewhere, then obviously speak up um, when I come round and, speak to you in a little while and tell me about it and that's that's kind of when you find out um so then you can and what that means once you've got that information is you can you can adapt a tour accordingly and and every tour even if it's the same tour uh, week after week then every tour is slightly different because you're visiting different locations and I, I guess as well that, um, you know, even though you you might go to these sort of uh, places repeatedly, you're going to get different questions from people and people's perspectives are going to be different. So I guess that actually it's different every time you go there. It is. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, in the early days of, of doing stuff, Ledger, we only had like one or two tours. Um, so you were essentially doing the same tour week in, week out. And some people might say, well, you, you must get bored with that. You don't get bored with going around these battlefields for a start, but what you can do, because no one's telling you which road you've got to take or what additional stops you might throw in and so on, then you can just get on with it and, and you can you can literally make each tour different, even if the passengers don't dictate, you can dictate that yourself. And 
different times of the year, the landscape changes greatly. And there are some areas that it's really good to drive down during different parts of the year because they'll see those battlefields in a different way. You know, coming across the Ancre Valley near Thiepval, uh, in a period when they've been doing deep ploughing, you can make them look across the valley and they can see those ghost-like traces of, of German trenches around Hamel and Bocor and things like that, So, which you, you wouldn't see in, in, in the summer. But when you're travelling past the woods in the summer, High Ward and Trones Ward and so on, then they're kind of seeing it as it was before the first shells dropped in those early summer battles of July 1916. So they're getting a glimpse into what that ground was like. And occasionally, in, in, in some years gone by, you've got fields around Arras and, and down on the Somme where it's, it's almost like set aside, where they've kind of let it go wild. And they're getting an insight into what no man's land once looked like. You know, no man's land was just that. There was no one in it. Um, and it all grew up wild with poppies and cornflowers and elephant grass and everything else. And when you can show them that, that is not what they perceive no man's land to be. They think it's just going to be shell craters and Passchendaele moonscapes. But um, the landscape is a great tool, all part of your toolkit. I, I think well, I think you're absolutely right. And I think one of the things that I, I was talking about um, yesterday when we were walking the battlefield is, is actually, if you get your sort of boots on the ground kind of thing, you do get an entirely different perception of it that you don't get if you're driving in a car, you don't get you're in a coach and you appreciate how those very subtle changes in gradient that if you're in a car, you just go straight over them. Actually, what an impact they had on, on the course of, 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 of the battle and, and the fighting. And uh, so the, the the other day we were at Obel's, and I think there's probably nowhere I can think of in certainly in Artois where that's more apparent of just that very minor change in height as to what a huge difference it has on the uh, on the actual course of the battle. Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. When you when you walk that that ground in front of the Albers Ridge. And you look up and you're looking at something that's like 30, 40 metres above sea level in front of you. Uh, you think oh, that's nothing, you know, it's, it's, it's like a blink on an Alden survey map of Wales or Scotland or whatever. But in that flat landscape, it, it, it's totally dominant. And then when you walk up onto it and look back down from a, from a German perspective, you can see right across that plain towards Fleur Bay and Mokwasart and all these other places. And, and, and you realise, yeah, this is a really important feature. Yeah, I think you don't. As I said, I think I think you don't sort of perceive that um, when you're when you're in a vehicle. And I think um, you know it's really if you want to really understand a battlefield, you have to walk it. Yeah, definitely. I mean, absolutely. Uh, I'm you know I've spent a career trying to get people to do that through writing books about walking the battlefields. Um, uh, I remember being told actually by the by the publishers that no one would buy a walking guide to the battlefields because no one walked it. And, I, and I, I, well, that wasn't really true even then, but but certainly I, it was nice to then see subsequently people going around with these little books tucked under their arm and, and walking the battlefields has become a, a big, big part of what people do when they go there. And, and like you say, you can't really truly understand the texture of any battlefield landscape until you have got your boots on that ground and, and seen it from that soldier's eye level. Um, so yeah, really important way of, of visiting. It's funny, isn't it? When you think that, if you think back to what, so what the publisher said, that no one would be interested in it, and uh, you know, you know, I think uh, you know, obviously reprinted, walking the psalm, and um, and uh, there's other ones coming out as well, I believe. So uh, clearly, uh, perhaps not uh, not on the same page as uh, as many Western Front visitors, maybe. 
No, no, I'm, I'm sure many authors have got publishers that have told them their book would never sell and then it does sell. I mean, it, it's it's not J.K. Rowling or anything like that, but uh, Walking the Psalms sold about 20,000 copies, which for you know, a non-fiction book um, over a few editions, I'm very, very happy with it. And, uh, and I like to think that it, it has made people think about doing that, but not just travelling in a vehicle and driving from cemetery and memorial to cemetery and memorial, but to stop get out, walk down some of those tracks and along the edge of the woods and so on and and see that landscape for what it is, all part of the story. So obviously, um, when obviously you, you've produced a number of, of, of books, which I think sort of grace the bookshelves of, of many, you know, World War One uh, sort of uh, visitors and that sort of thing. Um, really, I'd kind of like to sort of understand and take you back to the beginning as to how you came to become a military historian. Because when you go to the school's career office, it's generally not one of the um, options that come up for uh, people that I think should become a, a military historian. So, so how did um, how did your sort of journey into this world begin? Well, no, no, there's a question. Um, so essentially, I, I kind of grew up in that airfix generation that uh, had warfare pretty much, you know, part of our day-to-day existence through toys, comics, the media, with you know, a limited number of television channels in those days, lots of black and white films, a lot of which were war films. And um, airfix kits, making tiger tanks and, you know, playing with airfix soldiers and action man, all that kind of stuff. So you kind of grow up with that. Um, But my dad was a Second World War um, veteran. And uh, so he was he was a lot older than most of my mates' dads. He had me quite late in his life. And uh, that took me only like one step away, really from the Great War. Now, his, his dad had died many years before, so I never met that grandfather, but the other grandfather I did, he joined up in 1918, and he served right through to the other side of Dunkirk. And more importantly than them was my grandmother, because she was a young girl in Colchester in Essex during the war. And she witnessed the men coming back from the trenches covered in some chalk, and there were a lot of military hospitals in um, in Colchester and she could remember the wounded coming back to the stations there and for her there was a great war generation of cousins and her brother all of which had marched to war and they were lads that worked in the fields they were agricultural labourers there was a river in Colchester or there still is a river in Colchester called the Hythe and they lived on Hythe Hill and some of them were bargemen on the uh, on the river Hythe so they were working class lads there was a lot of unemployment in Edwardian Britain. It wasn't all Downton Abbey. Um, you know, it was a hard life for ordinary people. And one route out of that, or one secure route through it, was the regular army. So a lot of them joined the regular army before the war. They marched off to war, and only her brother came back. All these cousins died. Uh, and she was only vaguely aware of where that was, um, but these names like Passchendaele and the Somme and Mesopotamia, one of them died in Mesopotamia, and all, all these great war battlefields kind of came out of through her. Um, and it just inspired this interest uh, in me. And about that same sort of time, there was um, a fabulous uh, comic strip for, for kids of, of my sort of age, which was Charlie's War, which was uh, an ordinary story of an ordinary soldier in the Great War. 
um, and the the artist and writer of that had really researched that in some depth. So again, it sort of captured that imagination, and it kind of went from there. And then I, I went, you know, through the traditional school route, and I did history. Uh, but I was very lucky that my history teacher and my geography teacher were both Great War nuts. Uh, one of them had written. Um, we ended up writing three books about the Great War for children, which are still used, the Trestle publications, little white books, Les Coates. Um, and he's still going strong, Les, which is really good. He was, he was over on the, the Somme last year in between lockdowns. They took me to the battlefields after, you know, reading about this stuff and hearing my grandmother talk about it and the, the stories that my dad remembered from his father. Um, off I went to Eep in 1982 and, you know, the rest is kind of history and he just went from there so I went through school I did my O levels did my A levels went off to um, an obscure uh, college in Sussex which is now part of University of Chichester did a degree there and again it's I've been very lucky that these kind of things have happened so I went um, I didn't do very well in my A levels it's not not a big secret or anything and I ended up at this uh, West Sussex Institute of Higher Education and uh, doing a history and geography degree and I'd never I'd done geography for, for O-level or A-level. So I kind of felt as if I was probably out on a limb there. And I went to my first tutorial and I said to the tutor, I said, look, you know, I've never done geography before. And he said, don't worry about it. He said, what, what is it you're interested in? And I I'd just come back from visiting the Eep Salient, I told him. He said, oh, you, you want to go and see Dr. Peter Slow? He's writing a book about the First World War. So again, another, another one of these little doors opens. And Pete Slow became a good friend and he, he wrote a book called Fields of Death, which is a really interesting book where being a geographer he looked at it from the landscape point of view and he tied stories of the great war to places on the battlefields which is pretty much at that time was a first and um and through him we we did a few things and so on and then you know i graduated and uh, i went off and did a, a proper job for a while but then i kind of got fed up with that and decided to pack it in saved a bit of money and um went across to uh the Somme for three months to write a book about walking the Somme and ended up living there for 10 years. So uh, um, that kind of unraveled. And I'd, I'd already started to do battlefield tours for friends and, you know, in a car, then a minibus, and then there was enough of them to, to hire a coach. And it was a lot simpler in those days with before everybody sued each other, you know, the insurance and stuff was, was pretty uh, affordable. And then it became unaffordable and I stopped doing it for a while and then when I was living on the Somme, um, a guy I knew uh, was a, uh, a metal collector and also, unbeknown to me, a, a director of a travel company called Ledger Holidays. And he approached me to write a, an itinerary for a battlefield tour for them. And, um, and it kind of went from there. That was one tour that launched with me as the guide in April 1997. And uh, we've just, our latest brochure's come out. Uh, it's got... 76 tours in it covering everything from waterloo through to cold war period in vietnam um so it's become you know not just an interest it gradually became a proper job and uh, and the tv side of it is a is another aspect of it as well it's what you describe as a a portfolio career i suppose in, in terms of the different aspects of it that you find yourself getting involved in 
a fascinating story and, and sort of, you know, your sort of route into it. And, and is, is World War One your, your absolute passion in terms of military history or do you have other military history interests as well? Uh, well, I like to think like, like Mars and Minerva sitting on my shoulder are both, both, both world wars, really, um, because it's all interconnected. Uh, and there are other conflicts that tie into it. So I'm interested in the American Civil War because of how that links into the, to the Great War. And then, you know, Berlin is my favourite city. And, uh, and I went there during, during the Cold War. So I've kind of got an interest in, in, in that. And, and that all links back to the outcome of, you know, what happened with the Kaiser's Germany and then Nazi Germany and so on. So nothing's in isolation, but the, the Great War... One of my old friends, John Dreo, I often talk about in, in my podcast, he described the Great War as, as, a, as a religion. Now, no, no offence to people who are religious, but I think what he meant by that was that there, there was a kind of wavelength to it and, and that you either tapped into that wavelength or, or you didn't. And um, I suppose it, it, it's in terms of that, that's, that's, you know, that's probably, if I wake up in the morning, that's probably the first thing I, you know, aside from normal stuff that you think of would be the Great War. So, um, but the Second World War, because of my dad and my uncles and, and all the stuff that I've done, I mean, I, you know, I was lucky to interview a lot of Great War veterans, but I, I've spoken to far, far more Second World War ones. Um, so that's been an interesting experience to kind of compare and contrast what those two sets of veterans were like. And they were very, very different, very different. So uh, we'll, we'll come on to your, your podcast shortly, but um, to, sort of to go on to, to what you said about this, something you do mention a lot is um, the occasions that you've interviewed Great War veterans and that sort of thing. Um, how did you go about finding these people? Because you don't open the phone book and, and look up Great War veterans. So, so how, did you, how did you get introduced to so many of them? And um, were they all willing to share their stories with you? Well, that, that's a good question. Um, so... What would happen is, uh, again, going back to my, my teachers at school, they were very pro-oral history, which was not actually kind of in vogue at that time. Um, and one of them had an uncle, Frank, uh, who'd served in the 7th Royal West Kent, and he put me on to him. And then somebody else I knew said, oh, there's a guy that lives in the town who uh, served in the Royal Flying Corps. So I went to go and see him. Uh, and then when I, and I kind of did that on and off. And it was a bit hit and miss based on, you know, somebody, my mum knew somebody or you know, whatever. And it's, oh, yeah, Mr. So-and-so down the road, he was in a great war, go and see him. So I kind of did that. And then when I went to university, uh, I was living down in Bognor Regis, which is on the Sussex coast. And that, that whole coastline there is a big retirement area. And, um, and I discovered that there were all these retirement homes. So I'd ring them up and I'd say, you know, have you got any great war veterans? And one of them was a place called Gifford House in Worthing, which was a disabled ex-serviceman's home that had men in it from the Great War. Uh, the last Boer War veteran had died only a few years before. Um, but it, at that time, it was the Great War through to Northern Ireland. So there was a lad who'd been very seriously injured in Northern Ireland who had no family and couldn't look after himself because of his injuries. And, and Gifford House were, were looking after him. Uh, instead uh, so it was a um, truly amazing and um, humbling place to, to to go and visit and I rung them up and they were they were run a bit like a military institution and, and the nurses were often ex-army nurses 
And um, so I rung him up and I and I spoke to the person who was the, the, the chief nurse, if you like. I'm not quite sure what she described herself as, but I spoke to her as if she was still a serving sister in the in the army nursing service. She quite like that. So I said, um, uh, you know, how many have you got any? Have you got any Great War veterans? She said, how many do you want? Uh, and they had like 15 or 16 in, in, the, in the place then. So that I went down and, and I spoke to, well, I spoke to all of them. Um, but I would also put adverts in, in the local newspapers in the days before the internet, which is almost impossible for people to imagine now when we traditionally make contact via people through different methods. I just would contact a local newspaper in an area which I knew was a big retirement area and say, would you like a little article on the Great War? Uh, and can, you know, can I put something in there to appeal for veterans? And I'd get veterans um, contacting me. So through that, uh, and they would just ring you up. This guy would ring up and he'd say, you know, I, I served with the 2nd Battalion, the Middlesex Regiment in Mash Valley. Uh, you know, would, would it interest you to come and talk to me? And I, of course, yes. So I'd go around and see him. And then the Western Front Association, which I joined pretty early on, was a great conduit for this sort of thing because that then put you in touch with a, a lot of veterans because they used to have meetings in the National Army Museum in London and used to go down into their little lecture theatre and the first two rows had little white um, sheets on them saying reserve for Great War veteran. So the first two rows of the meeting was all, was all vets and and these some of these weren't just any vets. There was like Norman Gladden who'd written books on the Great War and uh, Herbert Salzbach who was a German author who'd written with German guns and um, Charles Carrington and you know, people like this. So it put me in touch with, with them. And, and I did that, that kind of thing, tracing these guys, going to talk to them for as long as I could. And I say for as long as I could because it got to the point not long before I went off to the Somme, but I kind of stopped doing it because I was going to a lot of funerals. And some of these guys have become very, very good friends. And it was quite hard to say goodbye to them. And, um, and, I, and I stopped seeking out more of them. And, and part of me regrets that, but part of me doesn't regret it because I saw, you know, over the next decade as, these, as that generation faded away and they got older and older, that what they would give in terms of what they could tell you changed. And the ones that I spoke to in, in, at that time uh, when I first started, they were just extraordinary, extraordinary people who had often kept the war bottled up inside and that no one had ever come along and asked the right question. And I, and I like to think that, that I did because they opened up in such a way. And, and I like to think that it helped them in some small measure to come to terms with it because these guys, some of them had two or three years on the Western Front, not two or three months, two or three years. And the things that they saw was just extraordinary. Uh, amazing. And what an incredible privilege for you to have spoken to so, so many of them. So uh, did, you, did you record these um, on sort of what, uh, cassettes or? Uh... <laughs> if only I had an iPhone in those days. <laughs> Um, yeah, so I, I, you know, there was a shop in those days. What was it, Tandy? And you could buy a cheap recorder in there and C60 and C90 cassettes. And I, I didn't record every single one of them because what I would normally do is go to them for the first time and just talk to them. 
and I didn't want to scare the life out of them by producing a microphone and, and so on. And then some of them, they had a lot more to say than others. So there were guys that had served, but often for not very long or, or had served in positions where they didn't really have that much, it sounds incredible, but they didn't really have that much of a story to tell or they couldn't verbalise it. So you often got something from them, but it wasn't necessarily a coherent story. Um, they might give you an insight into, you know, equipment or training or language or might tell one little story about an estaminet or a place where they went to and so on. But then there were others where you realised that this was somebody who really wanted to tell you something. And then those ones I did go back and record them as much as possible. Um, but not, not all of them wanted to be recorded. Uh, and I had to respect that. One of them... Uh, he'd served in the Canadian Expeditionary Force and, and he, he spoke about a lot of jokey stuff to do with it and um, didn't want to be recorded. And he said to me once, he said, you know, he said, when I'm dead, you'll read about it. And, and when he died, a little package came with his memoirs in it and, and there it all was. And, and in it, he confesses in the attack on Corselet, which was a place where I ended up living for many years. Uh, they captured Sugar Trench and the Germans surrendered. And they'd been given orders to take no prisoners. And, and he, with the other men in his platoon, shot down Germans as they came out of their dugouts. And this had weighed on his mind for all those years while he talked about the funny things rather than the serious things. And, but this was his confession that he could only make posthumously. And, um, and he was a 16-year-old teenage Tommy when this was happening. So there were things like that. Um, so it's, you know, like I said, I think it was a great privilege to talk to these, to these guys. And, and I, at the time I thought everyone was doing it because they weren't. And, uh, and I'm very lucky to have had that opportunity. And it's, it's the one thing actually last week when I was on my tour, there was a lot of teenagers who were similar sort of age to when I first started talking to great war veterans. And I actually said to them last week that it's such a shame that I can't kind of take you to a veteran now and you can listen to him. And, and that's, I suppose, that's one of the sadder things as we get old and these people fade away. So, so do you do you have any idea how many in total you spoke to? It was it's well over three hundred and fifty, um, but uh, I, I don't have a precise number. Some of them were quite short conversations where um, they, some of them, they kind of opened up um, and then kind of regretted it. I think, and then pull back a bit um but others you know once you'd kind of put that genie out of the bottle you couldn't stop them and and probably out of that 350 there was about 50 in particular that became very very good friends and 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 of them probably about a dozen that became exceptionally good friends and who I would go to see on a regular regular basis until the day that they they died so um uh, and you know because there was a longevity of conversation with them, they often, once they felt confident and happy to talk about things, would often then talk about stuff in, in much greater depth. And I, I didn't always record every bit of that. And I'm lucky that I've got a pretty good memory, at least for now. And um, so I can kind of think back on these conversations. And, and I suppose a bit like their remembered memory, uh, some of this stuff I've kept stu stuffed away and not thought about for years and doing the, 
podcast has kind of brought some of it out again, which is maybe not a bad thing. So of, uh, so of all of the veterans that you spoke to, obviously you mentioned there's, there were perhaps a dozen that became you know, extremely close friends. So who were the ones that really stood out for you uh, and why in particular? Well, one of, one of the most extraordinary was a chap called um, George Butler, who uh, was a regular soldier in the Lancashire Fusiliers uh, and ended up in the Machine Gun Corps um, and then returned to the Lancashire Fusiliers after the war and served right through to 1949 or something like that. And uh, he joined as a, as a legitimate underage soldier in 1910, at age 12, and when the war broke out, he was a, he, he was as a boy soldier then, uh, with the rank of boy. And then when the war broke out, he was a private soldier, having reached the age of sixteen. And he was serving in the uh, the Lancashire Fusiliers, um, and the battalion part of the fourth division was mobilised for war. Um, but his commanding officer wouldn't take the youngsters, uh, which was the, as I understand it, the War Office directive. So he obeyed orders. Some battalions, as we know from, you know, some of the famous photographs of Mons, Private Carter of the Middlesex Regiment, you know, he's a youngster standing there. And the work that Richard Van Emden's done with teenage Tommy shows us there was a lot of them, but George didn't go. So his battalion went off and fought in the Battle of Lucato, suffered heavy casualties, and then the Marne, the Aisne, and First Battle of Eat. And in early 1915, he was a trained machine gunner. He was a machine gun marksman and um and they desperately needed men like that so he signed this bit of paper that when he was still only 17 and then went off to the western front and jumping on a bit a year later i have a photograph of him on the eve of the battle of the somme and he's now in the machine gun corps because being in the machine gun section he transferred into the brigade machine gun section uh which became part of the machine gun corps and there's a there's a photograph of him and he's sitting in the middle of this picture he is the most senior soldier in the photograph. He is the most long-serving soldier in the photograph, but he is also the youngest soldier. He's a sergeant, aged 18, in command of a machine gun section. And uh, he went over the top on the first day of the Battle of the Somme at Serre, and they fought at uh, Le Buff in October, and then he was over the top at Arras on the 9th of April. And he met Adrian Carton de Wiat VC in No Man's Land on the 9th of April, on the evening of the 9th of April, 1917. Um, and uh, yeah, uh, and he went right through it. But he was one of these guys that uh, he was at Gifford House. And when I first went there, I said to senior nurse there, I said, who should I go and talk to first? And she gave me the name of this guy and I went to speak to him. And he'd served in different battalions of the London Regiment. And what was really clear was, although he'd served for about six months from the Somme through to the Armistice in 1918, he'd moved from battalion to battalion to battalion. So... I kind of deduced from that, that he was possibly not a very good soldier and that people were sending him on all the time, which is a very common thing in the army. And um, so I kind of spoke to him and, you know, it wasn't at all disinteresting and he was a nice old gent. So I went back to him and I said, who shouldn't I speak to? And she said, oh, don't go and speak to him. He is, the, he is a disagreeable old sod. Don't speak to him. And that was George Butler. And then just as soon as he can kind of spoke, that was it. It was clear that he was this extraordinary guy. And he um, was very badly wounded in the Battle of the Lease in 1918. A shell went off above his machine gun team. And, uh, and he was the only survivor, but he was wounded in the head. 
And at that age, which was, you know, in his 90s or late 80s, early 90s, he, um, he had, I would say, issues with memory. But for me, it would transport him back to the Great War period. And he'd be talking about Fampu and all these other places. And then he'd kind of pause and look up at me and he'd say, who are you with? And um, because he's looking at me and he's seeing himself 70 odd years before, and he's thinking, this is someone that served in the trenches like me. And he, and I said, well, George, I, I wasn't there. You know, um, I was a bit too young for that. Uh, but that's, that's how his mind would transport him back. And it was, it was almost like total recall. So, so there was him as a working class lad who'd lived as a beggar on the streets of Manchester for a year before he joined the army. Um, every time I go to Manchester Piccadilly, I think of him because he used to sleep in the, the cabs of steam trains there at night because there was a warm place to sleep. The other extreme, another veteran that became a very, very good friend of mine was a guy called Malcolm Vivian, who was um, an officer in the Royal Garrison Artillery, decorated with a military cross at Lens in 1917, and um, joined up right at the beginning. He'd been at public school, and then he was at Cambridge when the war broke out, and the war came along, and him and his two brothers all joined up. Um, one of his brothers was died of wounds at Passchendaele, he's buried at Dozingham. The other one went right through the war and was very badly wounded and gassed. And also got the military cross uh, and uh, his medals are now hanging in the Duke of Cornwall's Light Infantry Museum down in, um, down in Bodmin. Uh, Malcolm, again, was one of these guys. He, he survived the war, ended up in the RAF. Um, and then after the stock market crash in the late 20s, they were a very wealthy family and they lost everything. And he, was li- he had literally nothing. But he, his uncle, who was a parish priest, knew Joe Lyons, who owned all the tea shops and so on. And he put Malcolm in touch with him, see if he could get him a job. So he went to go and see Joe Lyons and had an interview with him. And he, and he looked at his record and he said, look, you know, you were decorated. You were an acting major in 1918 with a military cross. You know, anyone who comes to work for me, that's the start of the bomb. Um, you know, how can a man like you possibly demean himself by cleaning floors. And Malcolm said, the one thing I learned in France was that privilege and class mean nothing. And, and I don't think I'm better than anybody. So uh, he gave him a chance and, and he started cleaning the floors and so on. And he worked in the tea shops, um, which was difficult for him because he'd been gassed in 1916 with a type of gas that smelled like pineapples. And one of the things they served in Joe Lyons at the time was bowls of pineapple chunks and every time he heard someone open a tin of this and the smell of pineapple drifted through the shop he basically have a flashback to Moncio Bois and be under the table thinking a gas attack was coming in so he went right through talking about um, you know having this kind of experience second world war comes along he went off to Suez and was in charge of the anti-aircraft defenses there and so on but he never, ever had an opportunity to really talk to anyone, despite, you know, being an officer and he married. They didn't have any children. His wife died quite young um, and he was living in uh, down there, Plymouth, when I knew him. And again, it was just that right time um, that I came along and I could ask the right kind of questions 
these guys opened up and and he went into such incredible detail about the life of a gunner officer and forward observer and then on top of me visiting him he would write to me five or six times a week with long scripts of stuff where he'd send you know things that he thought of and this is how we ranged in guns and this is how we destroyed bunkers on the Hindenburg line and kind of stuff like that so those two from very different backgrounds were two of the most extraordinary but there are many many others you know Reg Glenn and uh, the Sheffield City Battalion and his description of going over the top at Sayre and uh, you know so many others. One of the things that I think really interests me is, is I have a background in uh, law enforcement and one of the things that I'm very conscious of is that oral testimony is one of the most unreliable forms of, of, of account that there is. Um, did you ever find that when you were interviewing any of these veterans? Are there things that were said to you that you thought that can't be right? It's interesting, actually, that um, the vast majority were, I didn't ask them to, like, you know, give me an official history account of the Battle of the Somme, but in terms of their own experience and what their battalion did, or what their unit did, they were pretty pretty accurate most of the time. They weren't always accurate on some dates, uh, but they were pretty accurate on on kind of details. If if you wanted to get, you know, dates and times um, and that sort of thing out of veterans, that probably wasn't that wasn't the best route to it. But what they would give you is a sense of experience and 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 uh, the what the sound of the Great War and the smell of the Great War and the and, and the experience of the Great War was was like. Um, but there were some who really would tell you, you know, barrack room or I used to call them a stamina stories, the kind of things that would probably, you know, a few of them sat around drinking cafe rums in some village behind the lines on the Somme or up in Flanders or something or other. So there was one guy, who was a, he was a battery sergeant major in the Royal Field Artillery. And he, I used to ask them about, because I was young and cheeky, I used to ask them all sorts of things. But I used to ask them about, um, military executions did they ever witness any military executions and he said he said oh yeah he said um he said yeah he said I, I was up for a firing squad so i said oh um what's what what happened there he said oh yeah he said it was a major in the army service corps or oh, he hated the war didn't want to be anything to do with it he thought it was terrible the army couldn't have that you know an officer saying the war was terrible so they they shot him they put him against the wall and shot him so i said well you were in the firing squad for that then he said no 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 he said I was meant to be he said but I was gassed so I never got to do it so yeah so that was like one of those stamina stories he'd heard that you know it'd gone from being a private to a lance corporal to a sergeant to a warrant officer to a major um so who knows what the genesis of the truth behind that was but it certainly wasn't a major in the army service corps so there's a few stories like that but they weren't that common I would say Whereas, like I was saying, when you when I can compare and contrast the experience of talking to some Second World War veterans, there is much more of that in the World War II generation, which in itself is an interesting subject. And I think it's because in the Great War, far more men were at the sharp end, that there were not that many safe jobs. I mean, if you were baking bread in Rouen, yeah, sure. But... Um, but on the battlefield area, you were exposed to gas and, you know, heavy artillery and that kind of stuff. In World War II, you know, you could land in the first few days after D-Day, but you might be in a petrol company of the Royal Army Service Corps driving petrol trucks. And, you know, you were not taking on Tiger tanks and, you know, the SS and that kind of thing. But 
what war stories did you have when you came home? And this is, I mean, the, the petrol companies were absolutely vital in the logistics trail for, to make victory possible, but they didn't have a lot of war stories. And you hear a lot of war stories from, from those kind of guys, far more than, than the generation of the, of the Great War. Um, and what I see as a parallel is that the ones that are in the infantry in the Second World War, which is the minority, but they were at the very sharp end, just like the generation of, of the previous generation of the Great War. They're the ones that are always quiet, silent, considered, and they're the ones that will always give you the most. And if you want to sit down and talk to somebody to hear what it was like to fight in the Bocage or at Monte Cassino or in the jungle with the Chindits or whatever. So it's interesting, really. Yeah, I think my um, certainly my remember from my grandfather from his uh, service through the Second World War. He was uh, he was a man who saw much but said very little about it. And uh, it's one of the I think one of the regrets I have in life that before he died, I didn't try and see whether he would share some information about what happened to him. I, I rather suspect that he probably wouldn't have done, but um, I did yeah. I did wish that I'd had the opportunity to uh, to to talk to him a little bit about what happened during the war. Yeah, well, I think that's, it's a common thread with these guys I interviewed. They could not talk to their own family about it. They couldn't. They didn't want to say some of these things to their own family. They wanted to say them, but not to their own family. And a stranger comes along who can kind of push that button um, and, and, and it comes out. And I, I, there was uh, one, well, this happened a few times, but one particular incident I remember where a guy, I went to see this guy, and uh, it was in Hove. He was he served in the 13th Royal Sussex Regiment, and he lived in Hove. And there'd been a few attacks on old people in Hove at that time, stealing their pension books and so on. And when I rang up to speak to him to arrange to go and see him, he said, oh, my son would like to talk to you. And it was quite understandable that someone wanted to make sure that I wasn't some thug coming around to beat up his father. And when I went there, the son answered the door, again, probably making sure that I wasn't going to bash him over the head and run off with his pension book. Um, so I went in, and obviously I wasn't that person. And we sat down, and the, the vet said to his son, you know, get, get in the back room, shut the door. Um, and he cast him out. And we sat there, and he went, poof, three hours went by nearly while he was talking about this, that, and the other. Uh, and he said, oh, I think we better have a cup of tea now. And he went, boy, boy, and he called to his son, and uh, the son was in his 50s, so he wasn't exactly a boy, but that's what he called him. Um, and the son opened the door. I said, I'll, I'd better go and give him a hand. So I went out to the kitchen. I said, look, I'm you know, sorry if you kind of shoved in the back room of your father's flat. Um, he said, no, no, it's all right. He said, I've been listening at the door with a glass. Uh, I've never heard that stuff. Um, you know, I'm just, it's just incredible. I said, I can't thank you enough because he never would have told me that. So, you know. I think that was the common thread is they could not relate this to their own family, but they could to a stranger. So obviously on, on, on this kind of uh, theme of storytelling, um, you obviously run the, the hugely successful old frontline podcast. And, and I think um, obviously started it uh, during the, the lockdown period. And I think really it's, it has sort of set the, the, the benchmark for, First World War military history podcast, and I, and I absolutely doff my proverbial hat to you for, for that. What what was the sort of genesis of that project, and um, and um, what made you decide to start podcasting? Well, thank you very much. That's very kind of you to say so. Um, yeah, I mean, if I go back about ten years, Dan Snow, I've worked with quite a few times in television. It, it started this podcast, and he got me on to talk about various things, and he said 
come on, man, you know, you should be doing a podcast. And I said, well, you know, when do I get a chance to do things like that? And I did actually buy a microphone and then my daughter stole it for her music and things like that. So for a long while, it was kind of in the background. And then I did a few things at the tail end of the centenary. And I thought at some point or other, I should really think about doing something. But when am I ever going to get the chance? Dot, dot, dot. And then dot, dot, dot comes along, which is the, the pandemic. So a positive side of that. Uh, I worked at the beginning of the pandemic, but I decided while I was still working that um, uh, that this is this was that moment. So uh, I scratched my head as to how I was going to do it, um, what I was going to do it with. I've always been a kind of Apple guy. So I had Max with GarageBand on and, uh, and I bought a decent microphone. Um and I kind of stuck, put it to stuck the microphone in and f- fired up Garage Band and recorded an episode and thought I'm not sure whether anyone's going to listen to this, um, and uh, it kind of went from there really. And and certainly I would say you know I, I get some, some very nice feedback from people which I'm very very grateful for, and they thank me you know profusely for doing it. But actually I should thank them in that it gave me an opportunity to do something during the, those long months that was. I'd like to think was positive um, and was, was, was good uh, as much as many of them say it was good for their mental health during those periods of lockdown. It was certainly good, good for mine. And, um, and I often describe it as kind of my confession really, because it's, it's, you know, it's, it's tales of tales of your days gone by and, and things that have been done on the battlefields and talking to veterans. And that's, I suppose essentially was is the genesis of it really was trying to put some of those stories that I would never probably put in a book or probably would never end up in any kind of television documentary or whatever. But this was a way of telling a few of those those stories and um, and it went from there. I think it's um, I mean I think it's really interesting actually because I'm I was on uh, not not yesterday but the day before I was uh, standing on the Rue du Bois. In between uh, Festival and, and Nerve Chapelle, uh, by the Cinder Track, to walk down to the um, where the Ball's Head salient was, and um, there's obviously the, there's the information plaque outside talking about the men from Sussex and, and Lowther's Lambs, and of course that was the subject of one of your most recent podcasts, and it was like, ah, oh, now I it all makes sense because obviously I'm listening to to the podcast, and and I think it's um I think it's a very different medium for bringing the battlefield to to life for people, um, and I think um, very much we were talking about this the other day, you and I, and I think it's been a sort of it is the golden age for for military history podcasts and do you think that this is something that's going to continue is this um, going to be a sort of new medium for bringing a new generation of battlefield visitors um to to the western front i, I think it is i, I think uh, i mean when i while i was doing it during the, the the pandemic i thought you know is this just something one of these little spin-offs of the pandemic that people are listening to this because they've got the time and they've got nothing else to do and so on and when they do go back to work and when they do resume their lives again, will it kind of drop away? Well, I, you know, I think you've experienced the same. It hasn't really dropped away at all. In fact, it's, it seems to get more and more popular. Um, so I, I kind of feel as if podcasts now are part of the landscape and, um, and that people turn to them in the same way that they began to turn to Twitter in the early years of Twitter. And that built up momentum. And I, and I think there are, there are plenty of... Um, 
celebrity podcasts out there and you know all that kind of stuff and i'm sure many of those will be flashing the pan they might get a few million downloads but i don't think that they'll continue whereas those that have got um unique content uh which is not just someone talking about how many films they've made or you know what their latest diet is or talking about you know the latest album or whatever it is. I mean, there's nothing wrong with any of those things. You know, we've all listened to podcasts that have got that stuff in. But those with what I would describe as unique content, and, you know, yours certainly comes into that, and Peter Hart, the stuff that he does, and Matt McLaughlin and so on, those, those kind of things from a military history perspective, where it's, it's not just interviews, um, it's them talking about things that mean something to them or they've researched. That kind of stuff, I think, is is not going to easily go away, um, and it will inspire, a, I hope, a new generation of battlefield visitors to think about doing their own podcast. Because the thing about podcasts is, is yeah, if you're a celebrity, you're going to get, you're going to channel millions of people to, to what you do. But even as an ordinary person, you end up on the same platform as anybody else, and and that enables you to have a voice. And I think that's really, really important. Um, it's much more of a level playing field than publishing, I would say. Whereas, you know, to write books, you really have to have some kind of private income, which is why I don't, I've never had, I grew up on a council estate. So, um, you know, I've only written books as and when I can. And I kind of felt guilty for a long time of not writing more, but the podcast has given me into this opportunity to to broaden that and i would say to any up-and-coming young military historian that um this is a way for you to tell your story even if that story is still in development i don't think that's a bad thing for you to do um and it'll inspire others to do the same i hope absolutely and i think really this sort of for for me podcasting i think it's about um yeah, sharing stories and and hopefully um, educating uh, listeners and educating people. But I think the important thing, I think you're absolutely right, is that everyone has a voice. And I think the, what makes them really appealing is that everyone has uh, their own opinion and their own view as to, you know, what happened and, and that sort of thing. And I think they all add value to each other, all kind of complementary to each other. And I think that's one of the, the, the beautiful things about podcasting is that you could get um, five podcasters talking about the Battle of the Somme and you're going to get five different perspectives about what happened and who's so who is writing that um it, it, but that's it opens up that whole world of conversation and debate and that sort of thing definitely I mean millions of men served in the army on the western front during the great war that's millions of voices millions of viewpoints podcasts should be no no different really no, absolutely. I mean, I think, I mean, I've, I've been very fortunate. I've, I've spent 30 odd years visiting the, the Western Front and I, I have my father to thank for that, who, who has had a lifetime interest in World War One and, and got me into it. And um, I, I remember very, very clearly um, I've been many years going to visit the cemeteries with with my dad and and going round and and it was it all was fascinating and um I was sitting having my lunch um at a very small uh cemetery down near um I think it was a Zouave Valley cemetery near near Vimy and um I was walking around the headstones and you 
I suddenly had this realisation that this wasn't just a graveyard, that every single name on every single headstone was somebody's grief, that somebody's family lost that individual. And it was almost to me, it was almost like a light bulb moment that, that it changed my whole perspective on visiting the cemeteries and visiting the memorials. And for me, certainly when I'm podcasting, I think one of the things that's really important is to tell those personal stories because it's very easy um, or, or it's relatively straightforward to talk about this battle, that battle. Um, but I think what adds real value to it, and I think this is where your experience of talking to veterans is remarkable. It's about bringing those personal stories to life of those men, that this becomes not just an army number or a rank or a regiment. This is someone's son. This is someone's brother. Somebody loved that man. Um, and their stories deserve to be told. And I think I think for me, that's something really important when it comes to, to the podcast. Definitely, yeah, and uh, and I've always found that these stories. I don't. I don't think that we find them. I think that they find us. And over the years of of trudging around, not just battlefields, but places in the UK, all of this crisscrosses. You know, you you go into a church where you just randomly ended up in this place, and you walk into a church or a churchyard, and you see a memorial on a grave or a plaque on a wall, and then it's you know a cemetery that you've been to a few weeks before or know well or. Uh, and then you think, well, who is that guy? And you find out a bit more and these stories come out. And, you know, that's why I think the aspect of, well, I often say the Great War is all around us and, and, and it is, you know, the street in which I live here in Barnsley, uh, I walked down it and men went off to war from that street, you know, and, and never came back. There's the first house, uh, as I come out my door and turn left, the guy was killed at Thiepval on the first day of the Battle of the Somme with a local territorial battalion. They were in reserve to the Ulster Division, called up. Um, and, and he was killed almost certainly by shell fire, trying to get across no man's land to, to reinforce the Ulstermen. So all this stuff is everywhere. And it crisscrosses with what you do out on the battlefields and, and the personal stories. Yeah, they are, um, they are the, the tiny tokens of history, but connected together, they become part of the bigger picture. So I think um, I, I think obviously you know there, there is that sort of family connection and, and family stories, and that kind of brings me on really to sort of some of the television work that you do and and some of the sort of the research. Now, obviously, I've um, I've seen you in, in various sort of television programs and certainly things like um you know who do you think you are and that sort of thing. Um, how did you get involved in that? Um, well, uh, <laughs> my old friend Jackie Plato, who sadly passed away in the last year or so, was a member of the Diggers, and. Uh, a guy called John Hayes Fisher, um, who was a BBC producer, had gone over because he was interested in the Great War with his mate, uh, Russell, whose relative was killed at Mass Trap Farm. And they'd gone over to have a look at that. And they'd heard about this exhibition in Bosinger Town Hall, all this archaeology. And he went along to have a look at it and he realised, blimey, there's, there's a programme in this. Um, so he got a, an agreement with the diggers to, to follow them around. And, and at that time, they it was for a BBC uh, series that was to... Uh, meant to rival time team called meet the ancestors which i think ran for about three seasons or something like that and um they wanted to have an historian in it and the the, the big military historian at that time on the screens was was richard holmes and the diggers didn't want richard holmes and i never really found out why but they didn't want richard holmes but they suggested um me to uh, to john and i met up with john john was born in sussex as i was so we had a kind of a connection and um, and he, he said, yeah, okay, come along and, and we'll see what we do in a few interviews with him and see where, where it goes. And 
And I ended up being in that program, which was Forgotten Battlefield, which was broadcast in 2002, filmed in 2001, so 20 years ago now. And TV is a funny little thing because at that time with Meet the Ancestors was part of BBC History, which had Time Watch in it. And uh, once they kind of find somebody that they think is reasonably okay and reliable, they, they kind of come back again and again. So I got kept getting asked for different things and did programs on Gallipoli and uh, D-Day and, uh, and all sorts of things. And then TV comes and goes. It's, it's not really a job. I mean, many people, I'm sure, think that you can go into it um, as a military historian and there is a full-time job that there isn't really because things get made and there can often be big gaps until that kind of thing is made again because sometimes TV convinces itself that it's told that story, doesn't need to tell it again, at least not for the while. Um, so a few, there was a few gaps. And then in 2007, I did another program with John called Aces Falling, which was based on um, Peter Hart's work on the Royal Flying Corps. And because of my knowledge of battlefields, this is the other the way I got dragged into this. It wasn't just about being an on-screen interviewee. It was because um, being interested in photography, um, uh, I would always talk to the crew about what they were doing, particularly cameramen. I was lucky to, to work with quite a lot of really superb cameramen who gave me really incredible insights into photography and how to frame up shots and things just by watching them, really. And so you get to learn how TV operates and you get to learn what a producer is looking for. So producers could come to me and say, I'm making a program on X, Y, and Z to do with World War One or World War Two. What can I point a camera at? And I would take them away on a recce and, and I wouldn't say, you must point your camera at this. I'd show them a load of stuff. And, um, and then make up their mind as to what they would want to film. So I ended up doing a lot of that sort of stuff as well, working behind the camera. And then because I spoke French and so on, uh, they'd say, well, can you come on the shoot? Because we need somebody, you know, rather than try to look at a map and try and figure out where these places are, you come along. And so I ended up doing shoot after shoot after shoot, acting as a kind of fixer. And I would be there if there was a presenter to... Um, make sure the history content was all right um, and things like that. And in those days, every documentary, that, when the final script came out, um, they would send it to someone like me to, um, to have a look at it just to make sure it was okay. The BBC started preparing a whole load of stuff for the 90th anniversary of the war. And actually, they probably ended up doing more than they actually did 10 years later for the centenary in terms of programming. So I found myself working pretty much full time for almost a year doing different series and working with BBC Education and, and so on, on different programmes to do with that, that period of the commemoration of the, the 90th anniversary of the end of, of the Great War. Having that glorious period, all that, BBC basically cancelled Time Watch and that was the end of BBC history. And, and I don't think it's ever really been quite the same since. So everybody who worked in that went off in different directions so then I moved into a territory of not doing so much BBC stuff, but Channel 4, Channel 5 uh, and various other um, channels. But nevertheless, interesting stuff. Simon Verdigam, I think you've spoken to on your podcast. You know, we met him on his first big dig at Messines in 2012. And we spent you know months going over a couple of times a week um, filming what he was up to. Uh, so I've kind of continued, really. Um, 
it's much harder now to get anything commissioned. And um, so the, the last big thing that I did was a World War II thing for Dunkirk in 2017 when we did uh, Dunkirk, the new evidence. But I get asked every year to do something for who do you think you are? Um, I can't always do it. Sometimes I do some of the research, but I can't always do the on-screen stuff. I've done something for the current series, which I think is on next week. Um, and that's always really enjoyable because you're you're bringing the Great War to an audience that probably wouldn't look at a Great War documentary. And uh, and who do you think you are? Pretty fastidious about the research they do. So they're quite solid stories, which I quite like. Um, and because I'm really now, I'm not really bothered whether I'm on television or not, I kind of choose what I want to do. And believe me, I've had some really weird requests when it comes to television programmes, which I've politely declined. Well, then you've got to, if you can, uh, without without giving any trade secrets away, what have you been asked to do? Well, uh, I can tell you one that was uh, thankfully never made. A guy rang me up and he said, uh, in the approach to the centenary, and he said, yeah, he said, we're making this, this programme and uh, what we're going to do, we're going to take a British boy band. And I just said, well, I'm just going to stop you, stop you right there. He said, well, I haven't told you what it is yet. I said, you don't need to tell me what it is. You kind of said it already. You're going to take a British boy band and you're going to do... Yeah, no, no, I don't want to know. I don't I honestly do not want to know um, uh, because whatever it is you're going to do with them, it will not be involving me in any shape or form. So, uh, yeah, that, that ended up, you know, someone been snacking wildly in the ideas fridge there and um, come up with that concept and uh, it was never made, thankfully. So you get a few things like that. But I think, I think get, we should be grateful for small mercies, to be honest. Uh, well, yeah, yeah. But you also get people like, I mean, I, I had a, a producer from the other side of the world who wanted me to arrange for him uh, a shot where he had a steam train coming through a poppy field with a military cemetery in the shot. Um, and it, he was, could only come in December to film it. So, you know, you kind of have to be polite and say, well, you know, in December on the Western Front, there's a blanket of snow very often. There are certainly no poppies. There's only a handful of steam trains in different areas on northern France and Flanders now. And none of them go past military cemeteries. Um, so, you know, you get a few things like that. But mostly you get decent people ring you up and they ask you some questions. And I, I never say I won't talk to anybody. I mean, I know, you know, you can read on Twitter and many other bits of social media about how there are some people within the media who will try and exploit historians for knowledge and information. And I think you just got to be, you've got to be upfront with them. You know, I, I never charge anyone to just to ring up and say, we're making this program and it's going to look at this soldier and so on. You know, what do you think you can tell us? Well, certainly. I mean, I, um, I, I what, what I find particularly interesting, and in, um, is obviously your work with the diggers. And um, I, I remember very clearly the documentary because I almost fell out of my chair at the time because, so I had a connection to it that I'd bought the death plaque of the man whose teaspoon was found um, literally the week before the program came out, and I'd gone down to the uh, medal fair at Stratford on Avon in the grotty leisure centre by the big car park as you come into uh, there. And I'd um, I'd had plans to do the whole day 
there and I had an, an absolute disaster that involved changing a tyre on the M42 and, and that sort of thing. And I arrived sort of about five minutes before the fair was due to sort of closing there. I think the guy didn't actually charge me to go in because I was, I was so late. And um, I'd gone down with the intention that I wanted to buy a, a death plaque, but with the original envelope and, and any paperwork. It was, and I came across a stall, and the guy had one that had the death bat. I was like, fine, brilliant, I'll buy that, you know, and I'll work out who it is after. And, of course, it was William Banfield, and it was the same, it was absolutely the same William Banfield whose, whose teaspoon appeared in your programme later wow. on. And uh, I remember sitting in my in my living room in Birmingham watching the programme, and you could have literally knocked me down with a feather at the time. Well, I mean, yeah, they, they uncovered... I mean, I, I wasn't doing the archaeology they were. I was just there to comment on the history side of it. And what they found was just extraordinary, absolutely extraordinary, really. So of the, um, of the programmes you've done, of um, who do you think you are? Um, obviously, you've worked with various, um, I, I use the word celebrities in, in inverted commas. Um, are there any stories that have come up from any of those episodes that really sort of stick in your memory? Yeah, I mean, there are some good ones that uh, we did one with Kirsty Walk about her relative who was um, an original Kitchener's Army, first 100,000 volunteer who joined up in the Highland Light Infantry right at the beginning of the war. And he was in the machine gun section. Of, I think it was the Glasgow Tramways Battalion, if I remember correctly. Uh, and then he, tr he transferred to the machine gun corps and then uh, went right through the war and was awarded a Distinguished Conduct Medal in the Second Battle of the Somme in 1918. He was never once wounded from the research that we that we did. He wrote a hell of a lot of letters. Um, so we had that side of it. And then the war ended on the 11th of November and they were in Tournai, and, uh, which is a little town just across the border in, in Belgium, in the Wallonian part of Belgium. And they were billeted in a school there. And, um, and he wrote home and said, the war's over. Hopefully I'll be home either at Christmas or the new year. And of course, influenza was sweeping across Europe. And he contracted influenza not long after he wrote that letter and died within a few days. Uh, so having gone right through the war, spent three years on the Western Front, um, never once been wounded, he died of influenza, you know, when the conflict was over. And, and we took her, um, she had the letters and her dad had been named in memory of him and she'd named her son in memory of this guy as well. So, and also her dad. So there was this connection between those three generations and her father was a Normandy veteran who fought with the Highland Light Infantry in the uh, Operation Epsom in Normandy and trained for four years and was wounded and decorated on this first and last day of the war in action. So there was this inc incredible kind of story to it in connection with it and she felt really strongly connected to this guy which a lot of um, the talent, the celebrities you know, don't always do I think. Uh, uh, perhaps, certainly at the start, perhaps they don't, because these are just distant names sometimes. But I'd like to think that by the end of it, once they've uncovered the story and visited the places, they perhaps feel differently. But she felt that connection very, very strongly. And I've worked out where this, because I used to stay in for about 10 years doing battlefield tours, we stayed in Tournai. So it was a, a place that I knew really well. And I was pretty sure I knew where this school was. And I tracked down a local historian and he confirmed that it was that school. So we had her sat on the steps of this school reading this letter that he wrote from it, you know, just after the armistice saying he was coming home and 
you know, I know they, they they all break down in these programs, but she genuinely broke down and, and was affected by that. And uh, and that was a, a great story following him across the Western Front from Thietvale to to Passchendaele to you know the, that Second Battle of the Somme period, uh, which she described to his mother extraordinarily in quite some detail in letters. So that that kind of story was good. Um, with who do you think you are? That was a kind of spin-off series. Uh, but who do you think you are? Often your contribution is only a fleeting one. You're only part of the of the story, um, so you, you kind of only tell an aspect of it because they normally get several um, historians to to help tell that story to to give it a bit of a narrative, which I think is is always a good idea. And it means that you get just like the old days of Time Watch, where they used to interview lots of different voices rather than just have a presenter, or they didn't have a presenter at all it means that you get a lot of voices. And I think that's, again, going back to what we were saying about podcasts, I think that's really, really important. Um, but stories like that, yeah. I mean, you, you get to, I mean, some, some, sometimes they come to you with a story um, and there isn't actually a story. They, they come to you with a name and, and you look into it and really there isn't anything. Um, and those programmes never get made. And then sometimes there is a story but they uncover something else that's non-military in that person's life. And that completely um, really um, overshines it. And it, it doesn't, that doesn't get made. So uh, there was one, um, one particular series of who do you think you are, where the person had a, a French first world war relative. And it was a really, really great story, but they had a much more important French relative. And, and that story was told instead, which, you know, kind of goes with the territory they want the maximum impact and that was the biggest impact i, th I think what always uh, surprises me about these and i've been a, a genealogist for for a, a, a while I'm obviously not a professional genealogist but I've, I've done a lot of genealogy um and a lot of the people you research they're really boring I and mean, they just had ordinary lives did nothing remarkable and it seems that every person who's on who do you think you are? They have these remarkable stories and these incredible ancestors. And it makes me wonder how many do they research and they actually go, do you know what? There's really nothing to say about your relatives. They were just ordinary people. And there must be an awful lot of background work to not then actually get a programme out of it. Yeah, uh, there, there is. I, and I, I have no idea what the figures are, but I would guess that the, it's the, the ones that never get made <clears throat> probably um, eclipse the ones that do get made because they probably get some some quite high profile people but they can't find any kind of story that they can tell um, in in the scope of uh, you know 60 minutes of, of television um, so it's a challenge and, and I know there are a huge number of genealogists and historians Chris Baker's fabulous website the long long trail he does a lot of research for them. And, and with him, it's always top-notch research because they very often they send me, um, you know, his research. This is what our experts found out about it. You know, this is what we wanted to talk to uh, the, um, the talent about and so on. And um, so there's a huge legion of people in, involved in this. And sometimes, I don't really know why, they, they often get three or four people to research the same thing. Um, I suppose they just want to check the details are, are correct, maybe. And for a lot of young people who want to work in television, um, who do you think you are is often one of the first things that they end up doing. So one of the reasons, you know, whenever they ring up, and I've read 
people have had bad experiences and I would guess sometimes they're perhaps a little bit overly rude to one of these young researchers who rings up who you know perhaps is a bit cheeky and asks a lot of questions uh, and, I, and I kind of get that from both sides but these are young people at the beginning of their television career and they're kind of getting their head around what it is and I always try and be as fair as possible to them and uh, very often they haven't they haven't got any kind of idea what this really is but you can inspire them to see that there's there's something something in it and sometimes they miss things that you can go back to them and say well well actually you know you're telling this story but I've just looked at this thing you sent me here but have you noticed this you you kind of get that as well and, and to be fair to them they they very often react to it and, and change a storyline um, as a consequence of it so uh, it, it's quite interesting to work on really I think so. Some some fascinating stories, and I think there are many people who think you probably have the best job in the world, Paul. And um, you know, and I just uh, would like to thank you very much indeed for sort of giving up uh, your time to talk to me. It's been a really, really fascinating chat with you, and um, I think we could probably go on chatting till about midnight, I would think. But um, it's uh, thank you very much indeed, and obviously, um, you know, your your podcast, uh, the old front line, I would. Uh, I'm sure that many of our listeners also listen to yours, but if you haven't, then please make sure you check it out. And uh, it's just really left for me to say to Paul Reed, thank you very much indeed for coming onto my podcast and being a guest. It's been a real pleasure to talk to you. Thank you, Matt. And uh, I hope to get you on the old front line sometime soon. I hope you've enjoyed this latest episode of Footsteps of the Fallen with me, battlefield researcher, historian and writer Matt Dixon. And if you'd like to keep updated with what we are up to and what's happening, please don't forget to follow us on Twitter where you can find us at uh, footsteps underscore pod or you can have a look on our Instagram feed which is footsteps of the fallen blog you'll find on Instagram. Uh, We've also got obviously our website which you can find uh, everything to do with the podcast and pictures and uh, a blog and things like that and you can find that at footstepsofthefallen.com and if you have enjoyed what you are listening to and would like to help support the creative process then please don't uh, hesitate to do so if you go to our website footstepsthefallen.com and look at the page marked support us you can either head to buymeacoffee.com forward slash footsteps pod and uh, make a donation there or you can go to patreon.com footsteps of the fallen and uh, any help or assistance that you may be able to provide would be gratefully received. So all it leaves me now to do is to bid you farewell and thank you very much for your company as we continued our journey walking in the footsteps of the fallen. It's been a pleasure to have your company. Thank you and goodbye.